are doing in our sermon series is we're going through Jesus' words on the cross, the things that he said while he was hanging there on that fateful day around 2,000 years ago. Uh, This Sunday on the Christian calendar is the day that we traditionally celebrate uh, Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. We call that Palm Sunday. He entered the city amid great fanfare. Crowds came out, uh, as Robert was reading uh, the scripture earlier. And I often think, man, what a week for Jesus, right? He enters Jerusalem like a rock star. And the whole time he knows that he's going to be killed shortly. What a surreal moment that must have been. And how, how challenging for him in the midst of it just to, uh, just to kind of know the truth about himself. And, and who he was. At the beginning of the week, uh, the crowd is eager to define him. And I imagine him inside saying, no, your applause is not who I am. And then at the end of the week, uh, he gets just obliterated on the cross. And I imagine there was a temptation to let that moment define him. It's like, wow, I am just forsaken and rejected. And I imagine him on the inside saying, no, that's not exactly who I am either. But those are the sorts of moments that we will be talking about uh, today as we study uh, a couple of Jesus' words on the cross. Have have you ever felt forsaken by God? Just totally forsaken? You know what that word means, forsaken? We don't often use it in conversation these days. It just means abandoned, hung out to dry, Have you ever just felt abandoned by God? Like you went someplace with him and then he just stopped showing up, left you on your own? Anybody? Just me? Four of us. Okay. The rest of you are dismissed. Um, When we use that word forsaken, you know, we're not just talking about going through a tough time in life. I'm talking about going through a time where you felt like God left you. You know, so it's not just tough, but it's tough and uh, abandoned. If you are one of the people who have gone through a time when you felt forsaken by God, here's a truism. Uh, It has probably defined you as a person, that time. Time when you felt abandoned by God has probably really defined you. It's probably done uh, powerful things for your identity, either by making you a bitter person or by propelling you to greatness in the Lord. One of the two. You're going to go one way or another. Feeling forsaken is a momentous and powerful thing. Sometimes for bad, but sometimes for good. It just depends. Feeling abandoned by God is filled with importance, and it is really always filled with purpose, if we just apprehend the moment correctly. Those of us who live for God, who walk closely with Him, and have really dedicated our lives to living and working with the Lord, are at greatest risk of feeling forsaken by God. If you don't walk with God, if you really haven't invested much of your life in the kingdom of God, you know, you're just kind of casual about God, then you can still, in sort of a, you know, a self-absorbed way, get mad at God when things go badly. You know, even a lot of non-believers get mad at God when things go badly. How could God allow this? But that's not feeling forsaken, right? 
Getting mad at God is not feeling forsaken. Uh, to feel abandoned by God, you have to first have felt his companionship along the way. You have to be vested in him. You have to have built a life on him. You have to have done something for him and with him. And then suddenly to feel abandoned by him when the going gets tough. Uh, you have to say, hey, wait a minute, what happened to you? Where are you? You were right here a second ago. At least I thought you were. So to feel abandoned by God, I think, always feels a little bit like being betrayed by God. Do you know what I mean? I'll ask again. Anybody ever gone through a season like this? Not through a moment? Any? Okay, now we're up to like 12. All right. Um, I personally am very familiar with the feeling. Staking everything on God, on some enterprise with God, and then feeling abandoned by him at the crucial moment. There's a pun in there because that word crucial comes from the word for cross. You know, right at the do or die moment. It's like, hey, where did God go? I'm giving you my life here. Do you not care? We often come to those moments of forsakenness and temptation. And uh, we read about that in the story of the cross. Um, Depending on how you count, Jesus said six or seven different things while he was hanging on the cross. Uh, last week, we took a look at a couple of them, and this week, we're going to take a look at a couple more. Um, chiefly, Jesus' statement of forsakenness. Uh, the first uh, scripture of the day comes from the account of the cross uh, contained in Mark chapter 15. I'll just pick it up at verse 33. Most of us know the story, so we'll just sort of pick it up as it develops. At noon of the day Jesus was killed, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And a lot of people interpret that as some sort of eclipse or partial eclipse happening uh, in the land, which must have been sort of ominous when it went down. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're sort of given the Aramaic there, and then it in, uh, it's interpreted for us. So, you know, the sense that this literally is what Jesus said in his exact words. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or why have you abandoned me? And when some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, He's calling Elijah. Elijah was a very famous Old Testament prophet, uh, and the understanding was that before the Messiah uh, came, Elijah would return. And so people who were waiting for the Messiah were looking for Elijah. And of course, Jesus was reputed to be the Messiah by some. So a lot of people beholding this weird moment and hearing what Jesus said, said, oh, this is a moment when Elijah's gonna come. Oh no, it's gonna happen. The Messiah's on the cross. They may have felt a little uncomfortable at that moment. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. Um, the eclipse or the darkness had gotten people feeling a little sensitive, a little uneasy on this crucifixion day. You will remember from last week's passages that up until this point, people had just been mocking Jesus and jeering at Jesus. And I think the darkness and everything just made them, just made them a little more humble at that moment. It's like, there's 
something creepy going on during this execution, and I don't mean just the execution. Um, something funny. They were feeling a little funny. And then, and then this, this moment where this guy who is dying cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, which on one level is not a mysterious thing for someone in Jesus' position to say. This event had forsakenness written all over it. I mean, this guy had been beaten. He had been stripped naked. He had been uh, you know, stapled to a wooden beam and hung up there to die publicly. It was gruesome. It was ugly. Surely, you know, this fellow... Uh, was not one blessed by God. Anybody looking at it casually would have understood why anybody in Jesus' position uh, didn't feel like God was particularly near to him at that moment. Jesus had been so godly, though, is the thing. He had done all these miracles. He had had this huge following. He had been so powerful, so purposeful. And then, and then this day, just like fallen off a cliff into the sort of deprivation that he was suffering at that moment. Where did all the power, where did all the promise, where did all of God go in this man's life? Abandoned. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty good word to describe what was going on. And, and then at that moment, Jesus calls out the, the obvious question, right? Things were going so well and now this, why did God abandon me, is what he shouts out. Um, one question I have is, why did he say this, though? I mean, you can sort of understand it in context, but why did he say this in a loud voice? You know, he shouted it. It was hard for a guy getting crucified to do, uh, to shout out so everyone could hear. It's as if he were communicating something to the crowd, right? And that makes me curious. It makes me go, hmm, everybody? Uh, one, one key to understanding passages of Scripture is, is to let yourself get bothered by them. Oh, that's weird. That troubles me. And, and this kind of troubles me. I mean, I understand why somebody could feel forsaken in that position, but why shout it out? What exactly is, is he doing? Now, a lot of... of uh, a lot of uh, teachers, a lot of systematic theologians over the years have interpreted this moment in a particular way. They say that when Jesus shouted out, why have you forsaken me, God, that what was happening at that moment is literally God was forsaking him. And they say, oh, well, that's the moment at which Jesus was becoming sin for us, and God the Father, who can't stand to look at sin, turned away. And so, you know, this was a theological moment, uh, in, in other words. Um, and, and maybe some of you have heard that. And, and, and it's a beautiful teaching in its way uh, that, you know, the father didn't like to see what was going on, uh, so he turned his face, and that made Jesus feel abandoned. There's sort of a poeticness uh, in that. Uh, I think that's wrong, though, as compelling as it is. One, because I think it's wrong theologically. Um, we talked about last week, you know, sin doesn't really make the Father turn away, right? And that's what the Jesus mission proved. Jesus came to earth, put on dirty flesh, found sin, and actually embraced the sinners and engaged with it. God is not, is not fussy 
So, you know, you, one can make too much of that uh, in this instance, but it just, uh, it just doesn't, doesn't feel right to me to say that God had to turn away in, in disgust. I could see a father turning away in compassion, like, oh, I don't want to see my boy go through that. You know, that, that bit I can understand. But the rest of it, I, I don't know. It seems to me like maybe there's something else going on. Um, one obvious explanation is that, well, Jesus was just having a really hard time, and this shout came out of him almost unbidden. I mean, he said, why am I forsaken? Because the dude felt forsaken. You know, when you're hanging there, dying, humiliated in front of everyone, you know, you might exclaim unpleasant things, might you not? Uh, so that, that could be happening. Um, but, but here's what the passage teaches me, uh, and here's what you discover about it when you take a second look. Jesus was quoting from Scripture when he said that. We actually read the psalm last week congregationally, Psalm 22. Psalm 22, verse 1 is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 was one of the most famous messianic prophecies in all of the Old Testament. Remember that Jesus was surrounded by religious experts at the time. They would have known what Jesus was doing. They would have immediately recognized the quote. It was, it was rather famous. So it would be as if I uh, were shouting from stage, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Like, if, if you've grown up around the church at all, you know that. You know that phrase, and you know that it had something to do with, with the Messiah's mission. Uh, and so they probably would have recognized it uh, as well. Um, Psalm 22 is an astounding messianic prophecy. We could, we could go through it. There are a number of, of prophetic psalms that sort of describe the suffering servant or the powerful Messiah that was to come. Uh, they predict, among other things, Jesus' death on a cross, on a tree, which was a form of execution that did not exist until the Romans invented it. Uh, a little before the time of Jesus, um, and yet uh, the Psalms written a thousand years before that predicted it. It's really quite astounding, and several of the things that Jesus says on the cross and that happen around him on the cross are actually fulfillments of these predictions of what the Messiah uh, would be like. Um, a little later, uh, just to drive home the point of what Jesus is doing, uh, he throws in something from Psalm 69, which is another messianic psalm, another predictor of what would happen. Uh, I read from John chapter 19, which is uh, John's account of about this same time in Jesus' crucifixion. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. And a jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. So this is just a slightly different account of, of the drink of vinegar that was given to Jesus. But in John's account, it goes out of his way of saying, this had to do with scripture, people. It's as, it's as if, you know, they understood that moment that Jesus was playing with Scripture a little bit in order to communicate something. What was he communicating? Well, 
For one thing, he was communicating that this was a fulfillment of messianic prophecies from the Old Testament, and anybody who thought it through would probably sober up and realize that something freaky was happening there uh, on the cross. Um, The crowd, um, for its part, seems to have picked up on it. I think a lot of you know, modern commentarists and teachers of the scripture miss it, but I think there are indications that the crowd understood exactly what Jesus was doing as he quoted uh, from scripture uh, because they immediately think, oh, he's calling Elijah. Now, why do they say that? Anybody read the scripture and said, what, is, what does that have to do uh, with being forsaken? It's because Elijah, in their mind, was connected with the Messiah. So when Jesus started quoting these messianic psalms, they're like, oh, he is the Messiah. He is pointing us to these scriptures. They knew what Jesus was doing. They knew that what Jesus was saying had a little purpose in it. So the crowd caught it, even if uh, modern interpret- interpretations of the scripture uh, do not. Uh, but I still ask, okay, what was Jesus' deep purpose in this? Uh, he obviously was pointing out to them that there was a messianic understanding of what was happening. Even at his most wretched moment, Jesus was saying, do I not look like the Messiah you were taught to expect? Think it through, people. Think it through. I know you didn't expect that Messiah to get executed, but is this not a fulfillment of sorts? Think it through. Think it through. A tremendous presence of mind that he had to do that. Um, But I think as well, just given the profundity of the moment that Jesus was probably pointing them to a meditation on forsakenness. If, if that's the Messiah, and, and if his death does fulfill all the prophecies, why, why does the Messiah need to be forsaken by God? I mean, wow, I didn't see that coming. What's the point of forsakenness? What's the point of the hero of the people of God being abandoned by God? Yeah, that bears some examination. And I think in a pastoral way, Jesus was encouraging the crowd and encouraging us who had come later to really wrestle with this because being, well, I should say feeling forsaken and abandoned by God is a big part of life with God in this earth. Jesus typified it on the cross and after all, he was the guy who said, if you want to follow me, pick up your cross daily. Y'all are going to have to go through this too in some way. Think it through. Which is kind of sobering. Why has God forsaken me? Maybe you've said it from time to time. I, I know I have. Um, Jesus asked it as a question. You know, he doesn't shout, you've forsaken me. He said, why have you forsaken me? Uh, which I like better uh, because questions call for answers, and in coming up with answers, uh, there might be some learning done. Uh, It expresses curiosity, like all questions do. Why have you forsaken me? Begs the point, one would not expect God to forsake Jesus. You know, he had done great things. So like, wow, that, yeah, that's that's a big question. Jesus was doing so well. He was so holy. He was so powerful. He was so purposeful. He was so amazing. And then to be abandoned by God. Why have you forsaken me? basically provokes us to say, well, he didn't deserve to be forsaken, you know. And in my life, those have been the most troublesome times when I feel like God has just let me down really for no reason. It's like, wow, I 
I was, I was doing well. I was really trying hard. Uh, maybe there had even been some fruitfulness. And then you just pulled the rug out from under my feet. What's going on? That's the first thing. Uh, it suggests to me. Uh, two, it occurs to me that the proper answer to this question might simply be a denial of the question. Why has God forsaken me? Well, he hasn't. He, well, I mean, he has, but he hasn't. There's sort of a duality to understanding it. And that's really the nature of Psalm 22, which we read last week, the Messianic Psalm. It, you are forsaken, you are abandoned, you are hung on a cross, you are just devastated. Apparently, God has left you alone. But of course, we know the end of the story, don't we? That it really wasn't a total forsakenness in, in the ultimate sense because, of course, it was part of the plan. It had profound godly purpose in it. And, of course, the Father would resurrect Jesus uh, to great glory uh, just, a, just a few days later. Um, so forsaken, yes, but no. And I think in our lives, we have to master that. It's like, yeah, apparently God has abandoned us, but not really. Kind of has, but this is not the end of the story. This is, this is headed somewhere. It's merely a phase. It's merely a phase of pain and isolation. This looks bad, but it's headed somewhere good. To the degree uh, you ever feel forsaken by God in life, to the degree you ever have one of these crucifixion moments, there is redemptive purpose in it. Always. Uh, here are a few purposes that are in it, at the very least. At the very least, in your season of feeling forsaken, be encouraged that you have fellowship with Christ in it. it are, it's these crucial moments, these cross-like moments uh, where we are called most deeply to friendship with Jesus Christ himself. Have you heard that God is a trinity? Have you picked up on that over the years? One mysterious aspect of God. His being is so complete that there's fellowship within it. You know, it's sort of a, a mode of existing that we as limited humans don't quite grasp yet. Um, but there's God the Father. There's, of course, the Holy Spirit, which is manifestation of the Lord in the here and now, and then there is Jesus Christ himself. This sounds a little funny. It sounds a little mysterious. But in those times where you just feel abandoned by God, where you feel like your own father has just left you in life to suffer on your own, in those moments when you feel abandoned by God the Father, uh, you will perhaps most acutely feel your fellowship with God the Son, with that manifestation, that aspect of the Lord, because we recognize uh, in Jesus the presence of God during abandonment, during pain and suffering and humiliation. That's, that's kind of where Jesus existed while he was on earth. We are told by Scripture that he exists to make intercession for us now on the basis of what he has suffered for us does that make sense? It's where you get to know Jesus the best. And there are other times in life where you get to kind of know the Father best, where you feel really fathered, really parented. On those times where you don't feel that at all, well, then you feel brotherhood with Christ. It's still fellowship with God, but it does have a different personality to it, you could say. 
and that will be the personality of fellowship with Christ. But you get to know that manifestation of God best. I know this is a little weird, but the Trinity is weird. There's just no escaping it. You following? That's where you feel brotherhood with God as opposed to feeling childhood in the family of God. Both are, both are valuable. Uh, number two in your season of forsakenness, uh, you will have fellowship with suffering people. Um, I, I think this is just a truism of life. You bond with people during trial and suffering, right? The best friends that you have in life are the ones with whom you have gone through something terrible. Is that true? I think that's true. Um, the people you trust most in life are the people that have been with you during times of great suffering and forsakenness and abandonment. True? And there is something about going through the experiences of abandonment that make us fellowship capable, that make us bondable, that make us contagious Christians, make us human in a way that the whole world can find accessible. I think in some way, Jesus dying on the cross, that's the moment that made him accessible to everyone. Everybody can relate to that moment in some fashion. Feeling rejected, feeling abandoned, being broken down. Yeah. And when I stand up here and tell my stories of being broken down, my stories of weakness, my stories of abandonment, uh, I think those are the stories that people relate to more often than not, and vice versa. Um, number three, uh, as I already uh, hinted at, these seasons of forsakenness define you, perhaps more than anything else in life. You know, Jesus, he was always cagey about admitting that he was the Messiah. Those of you who have read through the Gospels, you recognize that. Uh, he was doing all these great miracles uh, fulfilling other messianic prophecies, but all along the way during his, you know, two and a half or three years of public ministry, uh, he, he never really quite admitted, at least not to the crowds, that he was the Messiah. He was always really careful until the cross, until the cross, and then he gets more obvious about it. That's where he quotes from the most famous messianic scriptures, as if to say, do you get it now? At this moment, in my great defeat, I'm revealing clearly. There was a sign over his head that said, King of the Jews, right? It was posted for the whole world to read. Now, it was posted as a mockery, but of course, no greater truth had ever been declared. It, it was right there to be read. The scriptures were right there, spoken by the man himself. It was as obvious as obvious could be, but of course obscured by the suffering. But if you could get past the suffering, if you could get past the forsakenness, I think you'd catch it. And, and, and even the people that were jeering at him started to catch it. Oh, is this, is this the Elijah moment? Were we, were we wrong? This, this, you know? And in our seasons of forsakenness, I think it's where our identity becomes most clear, where it really is made most obvious to us and the world. Um, in Jesus' 
uh, crucifixion, I think the battle was between mockery and truth. Right? Everybody was mocking Jesus. Everybody was treating Jesus like a bad joke. His temptation was to feel like a bad joke. Oh, it was all a mistake. Yeah, how could this be right? I feel forsaken. It must have all just been a bitter joke. Or is it a great truth? And during your seasons of forsakenness, you might feel the same way. I'm just a joke. None of it was real. This is ridiculous. I'm ridiculous. It's all been fake. And you can either go that direction or you can be like, now it's all getting real. Now it's all getting real. It just got real. This hurts. It just got real. The same battle uh, within us. So when you feel forsaken by God, um, it gets down to brass tacks. You know? Um, how you behave when you feel like all is lost is the best indication of who you are. You will know this if you ever experience it, if you ever experience losing all. When all is lost, you make the choices that have fundamental value for you. You choose the stuff of value beyond utility, beyond appearance or pleasure, uh, stuff that there is no point in doing anymore except that it's true and it is who you are. You say to yourself, I'm doing this only because it is worth doing, not because it will get me anything. Have you ever had those moments? Yeah. Um, I've had a lot of those moments. Uh, most of them I cannot share um, just because of the circumstances of the stories. Uh, I cannot share them uh, publicly. But uh, um, here's one. And it's kind of a stupid one. Uh, but just to sort of illustrate the notion. Um, I, uh, I used to be uh, an academic. That used to be my career. Uh, and I was working at a think tank uh, at Harvard at this time. And, um, you know, events had conspired uh, to make me understand that I had to leave academia. My career was not progressing as I wanted it, and I felt like, well, I'm either going to be a slave to this career or I'm going to go do something meaningful with my life. So I'd kind of arrived at the decision uh, that, that I had to leave. Uh, coincidentally, in that season, I had been called upon to organize an international conference on nuclear proliferation, which may not sound exciting to you, but it's kind of what I did. And so I organized this thing at Harvard, and experts were flying in from all over the world. It was going to be a kind of a big deal, and I was the organizer of it, which in my trade was kind of a big deal. Uh, and, you know, I would host it. I would give structure to it. Uh, and then, literally, the day of the conference, um, I get a, a message, not even a, not even a direct phone call, but a message from the director of the think tank at Harvard uh, via uh, someone else who walked into my office and said, you've just been removed from leadership of this organization because so-and-so, this very famous scholar, even some of you might recognize this name, um, though you have not walked in those paths. Um, he feels that you're not senior enough, not famous enough to do this, so you can't, you can't go. You can't, you can't be the man. Instead, I'm going to do it, uh, this other professor, uh, to which I said something really encouraging <laughs> and godly. Oh, but I kind of had a, a moment. It was a forsaken moment for me. It's like, it's not bad enough that I have to make these tough choices to leave behind this career, but this is gratuitous humiliation. I've done all of the work. 
you know. At the very least, I could have had this, you know. And so I decided, well, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Uh, and so the conference convened. I was not even technically supposed to be there, but I decided that I would be the water and coffee boy. So throughout the conference, I delivered water and coffee and tea and refreshments to all of the famous scholars that were there. Why did I do that? Well, you could fill in the blanks, but I felt like it was worth me doing. I felt like that was the thing I had to do. And that moment probably defined me. That action defined me probably better than lecturing in front of world-famous scholars would have defined me. You understand? That was really fundamental to me, to my nature, to my character, to my spirit, even though there was nothing at all to be gained by it. In fact, there was probably a lot to be lost. I would never be treated with respect by any of them again. Um, you get the point. I uh, had a dream once. Uh, I think I've shared this dream in sermons before. It happened when I was a sophomore in college. Uh, it was a dream that turned into a long series of dreams, actually. Uh, in the dream, uh, it was one of those dreams I had during the night that seemed like they go on all night. You know, you've had those dreams. In the dream, I was being chased by people through forests, through jungles, uh, who were trying to kill me for preaching the word of God. I was preaching in this uh, very wild setting, and some you know, terrorists in the area had gotten wind of it. They obviously did not appreciate me talking about Jesus, so they were trying to kill me. And so I was running from them most of the dream, and then at the end of the dream, they catch me. They stick me in this little hut, and the guy holds a pistol to my face. It's one of those dreams that just felt so real. I just remember it so vividly. Holds a pistol to my face and says, you have to stop preaching. And then there was this moment. And it was a long moment in the dream where I had, decide, had to decide whether to die or to preach. Now, here's the thing in the dream that was really obvious to me. It was clear to me that my preaching in this unreached place had done no good. Nobody had converted. There was no fruit to my preaching. And so that was the equation for me. Do I continue to do this thing that isn't accomplishing anything? Or do I die? Death, fruitlessness. Death, fruitlessness. I just, I remember it like it were yesterday, the way that dream felt. And then it occurred to me in the dream, it's fruitless, but it's right. I can't stop. So I said, all right, shoot. And he pulled the trigger, and, uh, and that's the moment that I woke up. They say that you never quite die in your dreams. Where you die, you always wake up at that moment. And that started for me what was like 30 or 40 days of constant dreams where every night in my dream I got killed for preaching. Every night. And I got killed. <laughs> And, and uh, sometimes I had the experience of dying and being raised to heaven. I got killed in every way possible. I got sawn in half. I got exploded with dynamite. I got burned. I got hung at the cross. I got machine gun. It was a lovely month for me. I was a little bit grumpy uh, that month. But I think what the Lord was doing is he was having my spirit practice forsakenness. You know, you haven't even accomplished anything. You're captured. You are ridiculous. Stop it or I'll kill you. Who are you, Jordan? Who are you really? And we all have those moments. The Lord was kind enough to disciple me in them in my dreams so that when I had them in my waking life, I could handle them well. And Jesus gives a model of how to handle them well. It defines you, this forsakenness. It makes you decide what is the right thing to do no matter what. And if you don't know in your own heart what the right thing to do is no matter what, then you don't know who you are. You have no definition yet. Uh, and so 
I've come up with a little personal proverb to describe this moment uh, in life. It's when you're most isolated that you become independent. Does that make sense? Jesus was isolated in the sense of being abandoned. You will be isolated at times in the sense of feeling abandoned by God himself. And that's the moment in which you might become that rarest and most powerful of creatures, the individual. So few of us ever reach the point of being an individual. So many of us are defined by what people think or how the world responds to us or we're defined by our accomplishments, but it's really in forsakenness that we become independent and individual. Almost no one on earth makes it. But Jesus sure showed it. Um, when you're sure no one will love you anymore, when you feel that abandoned, then you are probably most likely to selflessly love whom you should love. We see that from Jesus as well. Uh, when you're sure that your dreams are gone, then you can do what should be done truly, independent of your ambitions or your preferences. When you're sure that no one will see your generosity, well, then you know if you're generous enough to do it. Uh, when you think God has given up on you, that's when you get to decide whether he's truly good to be worshipped no matter what. So how do you do a good job at being forsaken? We'll just end with this. Uh, number one, when you feel forsaken in life, when you feel like God has abandoned you, be patient and assume purpose. Jesus was having a horrible day but he managed to affirm the purpose of God in it. He quoted some scriptures that said, yeah, this looks really bad, but oh, it has great purpose in it. He did not panic. He never gave in to fear, and he reached for the deeper understanding. Now, just a note on technique here. I say assume God's purpose in your feeling of forsakenness, in your moments of suffering. Um, there is a huge difference in those moments between insisting on an explanation and finding purpose. When something terrible happens to us, we always say, why? Why did you do this? And I have found that God just never answers. Never answers. Explain to me exactly how my life got to be such a mess. He never answers. Um, but if I'm just calm for a moment and I say, all right, my life is a mess. Let me see if I can find purpose in it. I almost always do. Right? So there's sort of a selfish demand for explanation, which gets us nowhere. And there is a selfless, wow, this sucks, but I bet there's some purpose here. Let me find good things to do. And you always find good things to do, even in your moment of forsakenness and suffering. Yeah. See the difference? So just be mature uh, about it. Don't be like, tell me why this happened. Instead, be like, so this happened. I will use it for good. That's the attitude that we want to manifest. Uh, number two. Uh, do not automatically think that you have screwed up when you feel like God has abandoned you. If you have one of those shame personalities, you'll sometimes go here. It's like, wow, God has just left me high and dry. Uh, I must have sinned egregiously. He must be rejecting me, in other words. Forsaken does not equal rejected. And that's a fair way to sum up what Jesus was saying at the cross. Forsaken by God, left alone by God, quote-unquote, does not mean rejected by God, you know. Feeling abandoned does not mean that God has stopped looking at you. 
right? It might mean that God is watching you really closely to see how you handle it because it's a momentous moment. It's huge. Um, so, so just don't, don't go there. Um, if God wants to convict you of sin, he will convict you of sin, right? It's, it's when I have sinned that I often feel God very present in my life. You know, it's when he walks up to me, kind of manifests next to me and goes, <clears throat> you know, and I wish I were abandoned by God at those moments sometimes. Do you have someone else to look at? Did you turn away from me? Um, but there's, there's a different, for those of us who have been walking with the Lord, there's a different feeling, is there not? Feeling convicted of sin is a lot different than feeling rejected, isn't it? It's a lot different than feeling abandoned. Do not confuse the two experiences. And just because you feel like God has left you high and dry, just don't berate yourself. Jesus did not do that. Uh, of course, it would have been inappropriate for him to do it, but everyone else was trying to get him to do it. He saved others. Let him save himself. What a joke. What a loser. Don't give in to that. And number three, keep ministering. Keep ministering. Uh, you've heard enough of my personal stories to know that I have suffered through times of severe depression, almost self-destructive suicidal depression. Um, the smartest thing I ever did was I kept ministering even when I felt miserable. Sometimes you feel like, well, I'm forsaken by God. I feel wretched. I, I can't minister anymore. It would do no good. I'm not, I'm not suited to it. Nonsense. We're all ministers all the time. You have to keep doing good. That's how you find purpose. That's how purpose is revealed to you. So even if you feel like God has left you, especially if you feel like God has left you, that's the moment to keep ministering hard, to double down on doing good, to keep loving, keep loving, keep reaching out as Jesus did on the cross. So let me ask again uh, the question, how many of you have ever felt forsaken by God? How many of you have gone through those times where you feel abandoned? you sort of recognizing the moment. Okay, now we're starting to get some dozens of people. Yeah. Uh, forsaken does not mean rejected. And anyway, if you're going through a time of feeling forsaken by God, this defines you. This is where you get to know who you are. This is where you become an individual which is what God made you to be. Jesus knew who he was, even though nobody else did. I would like to say that about myself. I, I know who I am, even if everyone else is convinced that I'm something quite different. That's security. That's, that's the sort of security that, uh, that could take a person through death and back. That's the sort of security that could take you through anything that life has to throw your way. Uh, I'm glad Jesus understood that well. Let's pray. It was quite a week, that Passion Week, Lord. The crowds tried to define you. And the cross and the suffering tried to define you in a different way. All along, it was your purpose that defined you. It was the unshakable love of the triune God. 
I pray, Lord, uh, that the words of the cross would seep into us and strengthen us. I pray, Lord, that seasons of forsakenness, of isolation, of sense of betrayal uh, would really uh, turn us into the individuals that you created us to be. I pray, Lord, for crucifixion in Jesus' style. I pray, Lord, that we could be those who walk with the cross daily and understand that feeling forsaken is often about becoming powerful and being true. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and minister to those of us who, who really need it this week, who are smack dab in a season of forsakenness. I pray, Lord, that the words you spoke on the cross 2,000 years ago uh, would echo to great effect this Passion Week. I pray, Lord, that we could be among the crowds that shout Hosanna even if we're feeling a bit forsaken. You are exactly who you said you are, Lord. So often when we talk about the cross, we talk about laying things down, laying things down at the cross, unburdening ourselves. I'd just like to invite you this morning to take hold of something at the cross, to take hold of yourself if you're going through a season of the cross. No, this is true. I'm going to take it. This is who I am in God. I'm going to take hold of it. In Jesus' name.